Luke 15, verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home he calls his friends and neighbours together, saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over 99, sorry, who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, turn on the light in our day, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together saying, Rejoice with me because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. He also said a man has two sons, had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and travelled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he's, he has him back safe and sound. 
Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, me a goat, so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Jackie. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, if you need a quick break, why don't you stand up? Oh, it's church, but it's okay to do that. You just need just a moment. A few people taking me up. Well done. All right, we're good? Let's go. In 1708, the British Navy attacked a Spanish galleon off the coast of Colombia uh, in South America. And the painting depicting the scene shows the force of the gunfire that blew the vessel apart, sunk the ship, uh, most of its 600-man crew, and all of its treasure. And for 300 years, it's been known as the Holy Grail of shipwrecks, believed to be carrying about 200 silver coin, uh, precious Chinese ceramics and emeralds, worth an estimated 17 billion US dollars. And no one knew where it was uh, until only recently when it was found by the Colombian Navy, uh, whose government also claimed ownership and threw a press conference to celebrate. Uh, its location is now considered a state secret and it's had, they've had it protected under constitutional law but there are others who would like to share in that, the celebration of that find uh, because Spain has claimed it, uh, the UK has claimed it, and even a company in the US have all claimed it. Uh, and now I know the real reason why one of the families here has headed to Colombia as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll speak to Scott later on. Uh, Spanish galleons aside, perhaps you've lost something precious to you, a, a blue-headed bobble toy, a wedding ring, or the pet dog, finding lost treasure sparks quite the celebration. How much more so with human life? How great is God's joy when he finds you, his lost child? The joy of heaven over every sinner who repents. So we come to this really much-loved chapter in the Bible, it's Luke chapter 15, these three great lost and found stories that Jesus told, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And we need to set the scene because there's, there's two kinds of lost that are going on here. Uh, and let's begin in the first two verses because here's the context. This gets overlooked sometimes, especially when you get to the parable of the prodigal son. So look with me, all of the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. Jesus attracts people with a past, and in most Jewish eyes, tax collectors were these notorious con men, 
uh, with the backing of the Roman Empire for the management of their Jewish taxes. They were hated. They're pretty much standover men. Their treachery was one thing, but Jewish law also saw them as unclean. And so they were people to have nothing to do with at all costs. They were traitors. But these tax collectors come to Jesus. And it's shocking because of who they are and what they were doing. And Jesus not only engages them in conversation, he's already called one of them as one of his closest disciples. He welcomes them. So there's tax collectors, but there are also sinners too. And that appears to be a bit of a catch-all kind of word. Uh, They are the people who are sinners in an obvious way. Most of us hide it if we can. Uh, Jesus met the rest of society. They know their outward sin is obvious. And so they come to Jesus because there's just nowhere else to turn. And the prostitute, the adulterer, come and hear from Jesus. The thief, the liar, the outcast. And Jesus welcomes them in. And he eats with them. He spends time with them. When you're trapped in your sin and you know it, well, then, of course, you start to recognise your need for someone to help you. And when the social and religious institutions fail, they come to the only one who offers this complete acceptance and hope. So they're drawn to his great teaching, drawn to what real freedom and real faith are all about. But now we come to the contrast because there's another kind of lost going on here in verse 2. The religious leadership takes exception to what Jesus has been doing. The Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Here's the religious leaders, the teachers of the day, those who know the law but fail to live it out as it was intended. They're really the hypocritical fraudsters uh, who are on this collision course with the Lord Jesus. Uh, And you see that in all of the Gospels, uh, all through his ministry. And they start muttering and grumbling about who Jesus is hanging out with. You know, this pack of sinners, these deadbeats, these lowlives. What are you doing with these people, Jesus? And the warning here for us is to beware this kind of attitude, this Attitude, which is really serious, that points the finger based on external appearances rather than the heart. It's a kind of legalism that leaves no room for repentance and grace. It's a false religion that turns its nose up at any sense of joy in sinners coming to repentance, coming to Jesus. And it actually fails to do the same. So all this becomes the focus of these parables. The reality is that the Pharisees are no better off in their heart than any one of us. And Jesus exposes them on this, and he tells them what God is really like and what his kingdom is all about. And in case you hadn't noticed, you and I are very much in this chapter in Luke's gospel. Have you found yourself in it yet? Which are you? There are two types of lost people that he's talking about. You can be lost and know it, and you can be lost and not know it. You are lost when you break God's law like the tax collector, but you're also lost when you try and 
keep the law like the Pharisees, but you fail in your heart. See, both need God's grace because Scripture says we've all sinned. We, all of us are lost. Whether you've sinned big or, or whether you try and keep out of trouble, you are a sinner who needs Jesus. So rather than the stuffy, closed-minded, pig-headed, selfish, hypercritical arrogance of these so-called religious experts, Jesus tells us what God does about the lost and the joy that he has in that. So there's some great encouragement here for you and me to highlight just how good our God is. If you thought Christianity was boring and lifeless and old-fashioned, then I suggest to you that you haven't yet encountered the God of the Bible. Jesus shows you and me what God is really like. He points the finger on dead religion and shows how God really works. So we're going to discover some surprising aspects of God's heart for the lost here, his love, his compassion, and probably most of these parables teach us how gracious God is, and they're full of gospel truth. Uh, do you notice the progression? Uh, pretty much from verse 4 onwards, first the sheep, then the coin, then the lost son, the odds get progressively better. So it's first one out of 100 lost sheep, then one out of 10 coins, and then one out of two sons, and then found, and then there's a celebration. So if you look, at, look with me really quickly at this, verse 5, when he finds the lost sheep, joy, rejoicing. Verse 6, when he calls his friends and neighbours, there's rejoicing. Verse 7, joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And then it's the same in the next parable. Verse 9, joy when in heaven when you repent and God finds you. And it goes on. It resounds through this chapter. It ends in celebration each time. And now there is a really deep sense of joy when you come to faith, when you come to realise that there is a true and living God and Jesus is real and he's died for you. That is incredibly joyful when you're, you know your chains are loose, you're set free, as we sung earlier. That's tremendous joy. That is not the joy that's being talked about here. It doesn't say that the sheep was relieved or joyful. Uh, the sheep and the coin are really inanimate in this story. Still precious, but what we're learning about I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Then verse 10, I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. It is a remarkable thing, isn't it? A God who celebrates and delights in finding his lost treasure. A God who parties at the idea of a sinner who repents. And we're going to see in a moment the God who throws a summer barbecue of a lifetime uh, and finding his lost child. And so it, there really is this progression going on. We're coming to a climax. But let me ask you, friends, do you know this God? Have you confused him with someone completely different? Is your idea of God just too distant, too cold? too uninterested, because this God, the God of the Bible, is altogether involved and concerned for you. He searches and rejoices in you, 
his prized possession. You are precious to him. He's not a God who's just wound up the universe and is watching it spin out of control. He's involved and he is seeking lost children. His spirit searches you out and he convicts you and he brings you to this place of repentance and he carries them home on his shoulders. What an extraordinary image. See, many people struggle with the idea of God as a loving and gracious father. And earthly fathers can fail to show mercy like this. But the God of the Bible is not like you and me. He is far more compassionate and he is far more abounding in love and mercy. And he seeks you even when you might have given up hope. He seeks that person you know is lost even if you've given up on them. He seeks and he finds. And he rejoices. You know that you're lost. Has he found you? Of the prodigal son, uh, another title is probably more apt for it. Uh, let's call it the parable of the compassionate father. Because this father is really the star of the show. The sons are supporting actors. The story all hinges on the father's attributes, his actions, his attitude his response to both of his sons. See, the father is there waiting and knowing and ready for your return. And so I forgot to go there. Really powerful uh, painting from, I think it's Rembrandt, about this scene. Let's let's look look at it quickly again. Verse 11, Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. And already you get the sense that this father is exceptional. Usually you would have to wait until after the funeral to receive an inheritance. Uh, These days we've got skiers, haven't we? I don't know if you've got them in your family. Uh, That is spending the kids' inheritance uh, and they're, you know, just using it up a bit so their kids don't get their greedy mitts on it. Uh, But things aren't all that different today. Inheritances bring up those age-old family problems, don't they? They... They ignite the worst in sibling rivalry. Uh, I heard just recently of two brothers who had just stopped speaking to one another after their father's will was read, and that was after months of disputes over property and money, and it all came to a head. It's tragic. And so the, the situation in this parable is meant to get you thinking about that kind of experience. But you'll note that this dad gives his son what he asks for, Sure, it's costly, but he's happy to set him up for life. So what does the son do? He sets off to walk on the wild side. Uh, If you didn't do it yourself, it's likely that you probably know someone who has done just this. Uh, The lure of travel, of freedom, without any of the constraints, uh, with family or accountability, they go, my rules, my way. And, And that doesn't quite go to plan. Uh, for this son. He goes to seek the world and all that it has, but he squanders the money in a reckless life. Uh, Verses 13 and 14, well, things get dire. With no money in a foreign land, he's forced into practical slavery slavery, and, of all things, working for a pig farmer. And that's not just bottom of the barrel in terms of uh, employment at seek.com, if that's what you use. Uh, This is his very Jewishness on the line. 
that is forsaken when he makes himself unclean by working with the pigs. His very identity is at stake. And he's even considering the pig's food. That says it's pretty desperate. And he begins to realise what he's really lost. He's been living a life alien to everything that he once stood for. And he's sold out and he's blown any chance of return under his own resources. So sin does that to you. Uh, There is no escape under your own merit. Uh, You can't do a thing about it except what this guy does. And he's brought there by his circumstances. Sin brought consequences. That is how God's world works. But we know that circumstances are part of a bigger plan. So look at verse 17. He comes to his senses. Even his dad's employees are better off than him. And his point of return begins with this little speech that he gives. I'll get up, go to my father, say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. He realises his sin and he goes home. He knows that he's lost and where he needs to turn to. Friends, this is repentance, to realise where you stand before God and turn to the only help there is. Perhaps this is you, even now. You realise your great need, that you are really helpless on your own. It all seems so impossible. Everything has just gone too far. Perhaps you think all your bridges have been burnt and circumstances seem to be against you. Friends, Jesus says there is a way. So the son heads home. And he's lucky he didn't meet his older brother on the way home, isn't it? Uh, Imagine the kinds of things he would have said. How would you welcome home this son? Or or put it another way, what happens to him next is deeply moving. Uh, It is not what you expect, and it's grace on display. Look with me. While the son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. He sees his son a long way off, and he's there with open arms. The father even runs. It is such an emotional moment. Uh, Only a heart like this would make a choice like this. And the son launches into his pre-rehearsed lines, Father, I sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy. That's not even lost in his reaction because the father is in party mode. So verse 22, let all the poppers go off now because it's party. The the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast. It's barbecue time because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Friends, God is like this father. He is ready for you. He is joyful, compassionate, gracious, and extravagant. The father has his son returned to status. There is full acceptance back into this family. His true identity is found. He lost himself only to be found by grace. Is that your story? 
that the son of mine was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost and is now found. That kind of forgiveness and restoration comes at a great cost. And the one telling the story knows all about that. Jesus came to pay the price of your sin on the cross. Sin has ultimate consequences. And Jesus pays the price in full. And that is such a relief. That is how the Father is able to stand there with open arms for you because the debt is paid and the slate is wiped clean. Your sin blotted out by Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. He who knew no sin became sin for you and me. By his wounds we are healed. Christ died for sinners, says Paul, of whom I'm the worst. Can you say that? So let's recap. We need to know that you're lost. All of us are lost and need rescue, whether you're religious or not religious. You're a sinner who needs a saviour. But praise God, the compassionate God, who searches for you and gladly welcomes you home. He is a rebellion and he runs to welcome you home, to celebrate. But we're not quite finished, are we? Because there's this other part of the story and it breaks the pattern with the sheep and the coin stories. And it's concerning this reaction of the other son. Jesus', Jesus stories often come with the sting in the tail. This older brother has been out doing his job and he hears about what's been happening. And in verse 28, he is absolutely livid. And just imagine the body language going on. You know, the arms crossed, the proud brow. Uh, he is furious. And he doesn't want to go and welcome home this sport the whole time. And it's interesting that this brother is then also approached by the father. His father came out and pleaded with him. And then this son just lets it all out. Let's look at it. Verse 29, he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Friends, this son is also lost. Look at the language he uses. He calls his brother this son of yours. And he's failed to see his own relationship to his dad as anything more than slave to master. I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed. Well, really, uh, you never. Be careful with those kind of words. My friends, that, that, that is self-centred, self-entitled, self-righteous, self-deluded. And it's dangerous. Could it be that you've also acted like this in your life? That scathing assessment gets this response from the father. Take a look at the contrast. The father responds in the language of relationship. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. Not a lecture, not a fine then, have it your, your way. He is gracious even to the ungracious. What an amazing dad. Remember, this all has to do with verses 1 and 2. The original hearers of this story 
are in view. Those religious leaders who have failed to see the work of Jesus in the lives of those around them, and they're about pointing the finger and questioning Jesus rather than celebrating the lost and turning it back on themselves. They stand outside and flatly refuse to come and be part of the kingdom celebration. And so I need to ask you, is there someone you think that is beyond the gospel that you've given up on, someone that you think is beyond the reach of God's grace in Jesus? Do you keep then the gospel packed away and you've been judge and jury in their life? That's what the Pharisees were doing. And we need to be very careful about this. This parable ends abruptly. Uh, We don't know what happens to the older brother, uh, but we know that it's certainly directed at his attitude. And there's a warning. Do you begrudge the gospel in other people's lives? Don't pull up the drawbridge while sitting in your self-made religious castle. You're going to miss out on the family celebration. Rather than misjudging the work of the kingdom, you need to come and be involved with God's mission and share God's heart for the lost. Be part of what he's already doing in this world, sharing the good news of grace with everyone and everyone, anyone who is in your life. There is an invitation here to come and celebrate the fine with God. Uh, Tim Keller's got a good book. I've put a little link to it on there called The Prodigal God. And he says that Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, then we must be more full of older brothers than we'd care to think. That's a bit of a challenge for us. See, Jesus is all about lost sinners. God's work is all about bringing people to a saving knowledge of himself through the gospel being proclaimed. And you need to find yourself in this story because when you realise how far away and helpless you are, uh, then you'll see the extent of God's grace to you in your life. You are more precious to him than a Spanish galleon full of gold. And if you haven't already, you need to turn and ask God for help. God is a searching, finding, compassionate father who is gracious, and he delights in his discovery, and he rejoices in you. Please don't begrudge him of that. Be part of what he's doing and celebrate with him. Learn from his compassion for the lost. See his heart and this gospel invitation that you're called to participate in too. Friends, let's pray. There are many lost sons and daughters here today. We thank you for these wonderful parables that reveal your heart for what is truly precious to you. We pray for those we know who are lost, who need to turn and find you, and we ask that you might use us. Help us to speak as Jesus did, uh, to correct misunderstandings about you and what you're like, and to hold out the truth of your word. We pray for those of us who can be like this older brother, when we think that our acceptance is down to religious performance and keeping score. Help us out of comparing that we already have in 
Christ and place our security, our identity and our belonging and our joy in you. And now, Father, as we come to your table uh, together today, we ask that you might prepare us uh, to receive the signs of the gospel in recognition of our great need. And so it's in Jesus' name we ask all this. Amen.